This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. If you are joining us on YouTube and wish to listen to this program as a podcast, you may click the link below to your favorite podcast platform. This talk is with Sarah Olive, Director of Research, School of Educational Sciences, Bangor University. Sarah is currently on research leave for a year and has begun serving on the faculty of Kobe Women's College in Japan as a visiting professor. In October 2020, Sarah was kind enough to help us start this series with this first installment. Much has happened since, so we have invited her back to learn how she has adjusted to life teaching in a Japanese university and to hear about her recent and forthcoming work on a variety of subjects, including an edited edition in progress entitled Hot Shakespeare, Cool Japan. This series is funded with institutional support from Aoyama Gakuin University, and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Sarah, good morning. Morning, Tom. Ohayou gozaimashita. Oh, it's so good to see you again. And thank you so much for returning to our little Shakespeare program here. Many of us in Japan, in particular, will be delighted to see you again on video and with any luck, maybe in person sometime in the coming months. You, my dear, were the courageous first guest on this series. Back a year, a year and a half ago, a year and a half ago, which seems like 10 years ago. And in fact, 2018 seems closer in time because the pandemic had this strange time warp thing that uh, is coming, I think, uh, into my mind, but also everybody else I talked to. But uh, back then, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> And maybe I still don't. Uh, I asked you back today because the Sarah of today has in some ways it, it become a good bit different from the Sarah of a year and a half ago when we last talked because so much has happened. I have a lot of questions to ask you about your recent research and grant work, which includes work on global Shakespeare with a focus on, on education, of course, an interest in YA or young adult novels and stuff, Gothic studies, and something on the front burner about hot Shakespeare and cool Japan we'll get to. But before we get to that uh, and go to your research and teaching, let's start with where you were in the physical world 18 months ago and tell us what has happened. Many things have happened since. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you're right that it seems more like a decade ago. So 18 months ago, I um, was at the University of York uh, working in the education department there. And um, I had an offer um, around this time last year to come to Kobe College, Kobe Jogakuin, um, as a visiting professor. And it seemed like this beautiful way to uh, travel during the pandemic at a time when we, you know, at that point thought maybe travel would never begin again. I couldn't really imagine getting on a long haul flight again. Um, so 
I did the sensible thing and took them up on that offer and said, wow, if we can make it happen, if, you know, in March 2022, it's going to be allowed that I get a visa and that I get on the plane. Um, absolutely. So the seeds of this trip now were sown as early as that. Um, subsequently, in I guess over the summer period, really in 2021, um, I also had an offer from uh, Bangor University from the education department there um, to take up a position. Um, and I started that in September 2021. So a physical move from England to Wales, um, lots of cultural and linguistic shifts going on as well, because um, Bangor is a, a bilingual university that foregrounds Welsh um, and English medium provision um, and makes that available across very many courses. Um, so it's not just for the linguists. So there's been a fair bit of adapting to do, but it's positioned me quite well for coming out to another um, bilingual departments, um, the English literature department here at Kobe College. Okay, so our international audience understands. So many of us have uh, spent time in the UK, many of you, of course, and, uh, much of your life, and some of our listeners. In Japan, though, it may seem uh, much smaller. In, you know, the UK seems like this island off the coast of Europe. So <laughs> in some ways. And uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to uh, make the, the salient point that when you moved from, you were in Stratford teaching at York in a very comfortable uh, area there in uh, the Midlands of England, going uh, there to the north and so forth. The move to Bangor, even though it doesn't seem geographically that much to us, is an enormous move. You're moving to another culture completely. Mm -hmm. And you're, like you said, you're in a bilingual environment and people speak Welsh. And Welsh is... <laughs> is a different language. Uh, I know from my visits, my visits to Wales. So you, you've, you've done this cross-cultural travel, and now again, you've moved to Japan, where I am certain, and I have many stories from my early days. Uh, you're, let's see, you've been here how many weeks uh, in well, Japan? Three weeks now. Three weeks. Okay, so the honeymoon is still on. Uh, I, I would give you another three weeks to a month to where at one point you're going, you're going to say, like I did, I wish they would just write toothpaste in, in Roman letters on the tube at the convenience store or the pharmacy, because I just don't know what toothpaste is. And uh, your host, that would be this guy, uh, I think I brought, I bought, uh, when I first came to Japan, I bought makeup remover. I just didn't know. And I didn't know how to ask. I wasn't sure exactly. And I didn't know at that time, I probably could have just said toothpaste and pointed to my teeth. But um, uh, I think that I brushed my teeth with makeup remover. Ooh. So I mean, those, those types of things. It might do a similar job. You never know. It's going to taste a whole lot worse. Than I thought I, the, the people here are so friendly and so clean and nice, but they just need some uh, some instruction on making to toothpaste <laughs> but, and language also, language and, and that sort of thing. And 
And so there is an adaptation uh, uh, period. There's a honeymoon period. And then there's a time when a lot of people say that they just get to where they just are tired. You know, it's called culture shock, but really it's more mm -hmm. fatigue than shock. And should that happen to you, you're, you have such a great energy level and you're so positive. It may not happen at all, but I wanted to guarantee you that it comes back up right? It, it takes a little bit of time, but it comes back up and you get to where you, you like things again. And you're in such a beautiful area. Kobe is a port city that celebrates its port. Unlike Tokyo, mm -hmm. you know, you could live in Tokyo for years and not even know that you're really yeah. in a port, right? But Kobe celebrates, they embrace the port. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know what you mean about the... Mm, the fatigue in the sense that like trying to decode if you can't necessarily read something if you find yourself suddenly illiterate in a department store or a grocery store um, and you are trying to decode all this visual information instead to get clues so with the toothpaste you're maybe looking for something kind of blue or green or with pictures of mint leaves on it or with pictures of teeth or a smile or um and actually I think this is a really useful experience and um a reminder for me around looking at things like Shakespearean theatre right so it's a reminder to maybe um not solely depend on things that you can understand by reading or listening but to hone into body language to gesture to facial cues to tone um all those sorts of things so all these experiences of sitting through faculty meetings where i can understand the occasional word but otherwise i'm waiting for people's um sort of pauses or gestures yeah, it's, it's yeah, so relevant for Shakespeareans. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember it went something like this for me. Uh, next Monday, blah, 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 blah. Last week, blah, 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 blah. Next year, blah, 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 because I'd learned my years and so forth. 163, blah, 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 da, da, da. And um, this particular professor's name, da, 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 da. <laughs> You know, but it, it fills in. It's like this enormous jigsaw puzzle with certain pieces that fill in uh, over time. Um, but uh, it's also when you're in uh, a faculty meeting, you're talking with people who have been acclimated to the names of uh, departments and the names of specific mm -hmm. forms that are not that transferable. Like, for instance, if one of my Japanese colleagues sat in a Kobe college uh, and uh, faculty meeting, they might say, I, I don't know what that form is or what this department is or where it is on campus, right? So there's that too. But the, all of those things go uh, with the territory. And you've had, have, have you had a chance to start classes yet? Have you begun classes? Yeah, absolutely. I started last week and Mondays are my Shakespeare day. So isn't that a great way to start the week? I have third years um, who they've had a tough time, right? These are students who have never had a year on campus. So this is their very first year on campus. So in some senses, they are as kind of new and as learning of the physical environment of Kobe College as I am. Sure, they've got way better linguistic capabilities than me. They might recognize each other's names from, um, you know, Zoom interactions, Zoom classes, but this is the first time that they're meeting each other as well. Um, so yeah, we kicked off with some work on um, 
actually the the little four line uh, curse on Shakespeare's tombstone, which might seem like a weird way to start things off, kind of back to front. And then, of course, you've got maybe now slightly old fashioned debates about is that really Shakespeare? It's a little bit grubby, that language. It's a little bit, um, you know, not worthy of this esteemed poet. But actually, I thought just to start with something self-contained and for these students, they're expressing a, a huge interest in Shakespeare's life and times. So it kind of ties in nicely to some material culture and also some textual studies. We've been able to talk about things like the spellings um, on that curse and why they appear in particular variations. So I was really surprised by how much you can get out of four lines. You can get 90 minutes seminar discussion, no problem. Yes, you're doing Shakespeare in his age, mm -hmm. and theater studies, and then uh, in the next semester, mm -hmm. and uh, children's and young adult uh, literature in uh, the second semester. And some uh, probably there will be a little bit of Charles and Mary Lamb. And uh, <laughs> yes, something, something similar to, to that. How could you have guessed, Tom? <laughs> well, I, no, I, I am. Uh, I, I think that I'm that I'm being visited by some kind of uh, uh, God of uh, history. And so, because the, the number of people I talk to internationally uh, and this is in uh, this is in Taiwan, Japan, Africa, mm -hmm. in um, uh, in African uh, Eastern Africa, and uh, of course uh, the North America. What people who uh, came to Shakespeare with translations or with the English mm -hmm. of Charles and Mary Lamb, and it's amazing how much influence that little book had on the history of Shakespearean reception. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll write the article or maybe you can do it. Uh, <laughs> hey, maybe we should do a collaboration. <laughs> okay, but... we could do that. That would be, that would be wonderful. I'd love it. Oh, um, so... I have heard of this, uh, this, this long influence, partly through working with um, students who are, well, examining students writing about um, Shakespearean career, but also um, a colleague in Taiwan, um, Wing Bozo. Her work is, a, you know, looks a lot at how Taiwanese children's publishing, Taiwanese children's picture books are still kind of, they're not necessarily mm, translating Charles and Mary Lamb, but adapting it or kind of bouncing off it. Yeah, I don't know if you've run across Alexa Joven in your, uh, you have, okay, and she's uh, part of this series also, but she's she's an American, but she was uh, born and raised in Taiwan, and she's the one who said that there was Charles and Mary Lamb in Chinese, uh, so uh, very, very interesting stuff. She's doing some very interesting work, as are you. Now, you uh, put here in a, a couple of uh, things that you sent me that you came over, and I wanted to make sure that we had the Twitter. Twitter, uh, handle here, but you came over on a Welsh dragon, which is good. Uh, and go. so you're, yeah, he's, he's sat up there just keeping, keeping an eye on me. And, uh, you know, maybe he's translating me into Welsh as we go. Your hashtag is drag a D R A I G. Yeah. Uh, and that's the Welsh for dragon, which is, uh, also the English for things like drag, <laughs> drag queen. <laughs> <laughs> or, or uh, drag racing, which has a, 
<laughs> drag racing. I think there's a show in America that's you're either uh, with the good old boys with uh, cans of uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon beer watching a car zoom off. I mean, it's, it's cool stuff, actually. Or you're on the uh, TV series where they talk about the drag race. Uh, uh, and uh, I forget who the, uh, the character. I'm so out of touch with the <laughs> RuPaul, but, uh, RuPaul. No, RuPaul. That's it. RuPaul <laughs> and drag race. Thank you so much. Yeah. I yeah, like the idea of, yeah, drag race, because there is a little I in this one as well. So you've got D-R-A-I-G. I, I-G, yes. I do think we could have drag race and, uh, yeah, drag racing with with. This little dragon guy would be fantastic. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, I, I'm going to go to what you have mentioned first, uh, because uh, you are, they, they need to give uh, you, another, make another word for multitasking for, <laughs> for you and others I've interviewed here, because it goes beyond multitasking. And I don't know how you keep these things straight, but you do. And so you're uh, the lead editor of, how is this pronounced, uh, Jeunesse? Jeunesse, yeah, you're Jeunesse. pretty much bang on the money. Uh, young People Text, Cultures, International Culture. Tell us a little bit about this. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a jour mm -hmm. journal on young, young adult or young, even younger, maybe. Yeah, people. definitely. It goes right down to babies, infants, children, um, you know, really the moment that you can start being involved in, in texts and cultures, which, you know, frankly, could be, you know, being read to in utero um, these days is obviously one of the pieces of advice um, that women are given. This came about because I, I had um, been just one of the editors. It's a very collaborative um journal, the way it works, um, the way editorial decisions are made. And I'd been on there maybe for hmm, a few months um, and uh, a vacancy came up for, for a lead editor who still works very collaboratively, but, you know, um, helps to head up the meetings, helps to spearhead policy, those sorts of things. Ooh, and I'm sure, I'm sure they were drawn to your work in a adult young adult vampires particularly in Romeo and Juliet uh, fic fiction right uh, and I wanted to mention this journal is out of the University of Toronto Press is that correct yeah so that's, absolutely that's, that's a, uh, Toronto of course uh, this the very 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 fine press and so yes vampires Romeo and Juliet fiction uh yeah, it certainly helped that I'd um, had this long interest in, in really Shakespeare for young adults, as you say. I'd kind of thrown the Gothic into the mix, thanks to our mutual friend, Samantha Landau at um, University of Tokyo. Um, it, I, you were saying, Tom, you don't know how I keep track of it. I'm not entirely sure how I manage to keep these balls in the air and also find connection points between them because they sound slightly disparate. They sound quite unwieldy, um, but I kind of manage to link them all together. So having the Gothic with the vampires, with the Romeo and Juliet, which I'm not sure how many people will realize this, but it's an incredibly popular text, a spin-off for writing about vampires and zombies and all sorts of supernatural phenomena. You know, maybe it is some of those 
slightly weird elements with people coming back to life at the last minute and um you know it's it's a popular thing to think about in terms of blood feuds so perhaps having wars between vampires and slayers and werewolves kind of you know is a natural fit or a natural home for Romeo and Juliet in the 21st century it seems so and very much so I'm not completely up on it but what manga and anime in japan do with romeo and juliet is fascinating mm -hmm. uh, where you have a system here where you don't have this reverence for the iconic we think of 18th century victorian shakespeare mm -hmm. and, and uh the university shakespeare there is that but the artist and the, the readers, the young adult readers, the artists do show uh, reverence, not to this icon, but to the source material. They see potential there, but then they bend it to shape to their young adult audience. And uh, I've just uh, finished a paper in collaboration with uh, Kyoko Matsuyama and uh, Reina uh, Endo, my student, where they, of course, know all of this stuff. And I'm the, uh, <laughs> the senior colleague who is who assimilated it, but finished a paper on that fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, you wanted to make sure that people out there knew that they were open, open for articles to consider articles, uh, particularly in, uh, well, young people, texts, cultures, and international uh, and cross-cultural subjects. <laughs> So. Yeah, absolutely. If anyone is working on um, topics around Shakespeare and children, Shakespeare and young people, it could be, you know, pop songs, it could be uh, video games, for example, that incorporate some element of Shakespeare's plays, you know, please throw those into jeunesse uh, when you have them handy. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think there's been the reemergence of a very fine, a little bit longstanding company, Children's Shakespeare. Uh, troop in Tokyo, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, Miss Endo, uh, who's now at the Shakespeare Institute, uh, knows about that. So I'll, I'll ask her about that. Uh, maybe that's something she could do, uh, because she seems to know quite a lot about it. So you are, let's, let's move ahead a little bit. We could talk about that forever. We could talk about all of this stuff forever. But you co-established the Gothic Association of Asia, GAA. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Funding. You have a grant. That's another big part of your uh, portfolio, Sarah, is that you <laughs> seem to be an expert in grant writing. And wow, uh, good for you. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's not the most pleasurable writing to do, is it? Let's be honest. But it I, is the I kind spent of the better. I spent the better part of this weekend, and I'm going. I have to go into another part of my brain uh, and make this clear, you know, to somebody who is fair. You have to put it in terms that they understand, the reviewers. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, you got this grant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it tests another part of your brain. I like to do it with a podcast on in the background. So, you know, this could be another way for people to uh, pair up their interests in grant writing and also your podcast. Um, yeah, I had co-funding with, um, again, Samantha Landau, with um, Li Shin Shu at National Chengchi University, Kasharan Kuta at Chulalongkorn in um, Thailand, and also Chiho Nakagawa, who is way closer to my new home here in Kansai. Um, and we were working to establish uh, 
a gothic in Asia association. So I like to think of it as making the same sound as the crows in the morning here. Every morning I get woken up by this. Yes, you do. Um, so we have this GAA, Gothic Association of Asia, and the website is about to launch. Um, I think in the next couple of months, it will definitely be out. And um, really through the leadership of uh, Li Xinxu, we also have another pot of funding that we hope will lead to events. So for those listeners whose interest intersect with the Gothic or horror adaptations of Shakespeare or folk horror, um, you know, please watch out for those events and, and get involved with us. Uh, and it also includes uh, Kasha Ansuta the, uh, from Chula Longhorn in mm -hmm. Thailand, and Samantha, our friend Samantha Landau at to uh, the Tokyo University, University of Tokyo, and Chiho Nakagawa uh, Nara uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the Kansai uh, region. Uh, they're near where you are. And a PhD student, probably uh, from York, uh, Catherine Smith or Katie Smith. Yeah. Absolutely. Katie has been, um, so I had, <laughs> I think this was a separate pot of funding um, for a, a York student intern. So Katie, who I have known through undergraduate as a master's student and now as a doctoral student, she's just finishing up now, um, came on board to do our web design, basically. So um, we have many people who are very good at the internet and creating websites, and I am not one of them. WordPress is uh, not a language that I speak. So I know that not everybody has um, a 4,000 word paper in their drawer over this pandemic period. And indeed, it's been incredibly disruptive for people that have um, caring responsibilities, for example. Um, but also, it's been incredibly tough on our mental health and well being to keep researching during the pandemic. But I did want to say that there's another way that people can get involved in this special issue. Um, because as an editor, I'm going to be focusing in my writing on the special relationship, as I'm coining it, between the Shakespeare Institute University of Birmingham and Shakespeareans in Japan. And many of you will know that that's um, where I came from in terms of my doctorate as the Shakespeare Institute. And it's where I first met and connected with um, Japanese scholars, with students who were visiting from Japan, who were completing their masters and their doctorates, um, and also with uh, Japanese students being engaged with um, performance and direction of uh, student Shakespeare productions, I'm gonna say. so. I've got a short Google form and any of the listeners um, here, scholars, students or practitioners, whether they are here in Japan or whether they're listening from Europe or America, wherever in the world, who built a bridge in any way between the Shakespeare Institute and Japan and who'd like to share their memories of academic, theatrical, social exchanges, any interactions really are welcome to follow that link either on my Twitter account, they could do it on my um, academia.edu page, or just drop me an email if that's preferred and I can send the link for that Google form. What it does is just ask a few questions about, hey, who are you? What's your relationship uh, with the Shakespeare Institute? If you are a staff or student member in Japan, or if you are a member of the Shakespeare Institute or a graduate of the Shakespeare Institute, uh, 
you know, what's your connection with Japan? Have you been funded to come out and do some research here? Um, have you uh, collaborated with the Japanese scholar? Um, do you do translation work for Japanese theatres, for example? Those sorts of things. So there's just a few short prompts um, to write about um, your sense of the connection between Japanese Shakespeare and the Shakespeare Institute or vice versa. So I'm very aware that this is a bilateral relationship with a flow of cultural traffic and academic traffic that goes completely uh, in two ways, if not more. Well, your um, impetus to write about what Chloe Gong's duology, these violent delights and our violent ends, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and what, a very cosmopolitan Shanghai gangster pandemic horror retelling of Romeo and Juliet. This is your work. We're, we're kind of going to. Um, yeah. So you have been one thing inspires another. So you get this grant and then you uh, and then you're you re somehow receive this impetus to 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 move into this particular work, the Chloe Gong's duology. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is a reworking a gothic and let's say um, <sighs> fearful reworking. Well, Romeo yeah. and Ju Juliet is fearful. It is fearful, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah. It, it would seem that an adaptation reworking uh, is, is very appropriate for it to be uh, that way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think Romeo and Juliet taps into some of our worst fears. So, for example, the fear of losing your children, you know, before your time comes, before you pass, those sorts of things. And it takes that and um, marries it with a pandemic situation. And I think Chloe Gong speaks about her work on um, Varsha Panjwani's Women and Shakespeare podcast sometime in the third series. And I need to find out more about whether she's writing um, before the pandemic, whether this is a response to the pandemic. It happens almost adjacently to it. So her two books were published, I think, 2020 and 2021. Oh. And it deals with a kind of um, fantasy, um, uh, you know, monsters and horrible crawling insects spreading this disease and spreading fear and misinformation as well about how to respond to these monsters and insects flowing around Shanghai through all the different quarters, whether that's the French concession, the British, um, the Chinese, the white Russians. Um, so it's actually a great lesson in Asian history as well, because it deals with the rise of um, nationalism, all sorts of things. Oh, is, she is she located in Shanghai? Um, I cannot remember. I would say that she herself is probably fairly cosmopolitan is my impression. I have to say I haven't engaged enough with her biography, yeah. but it, it deals with things like you know, uh, people who studied in, in France and would gain their kind of um, professionalism as a modern dancer there. It deals with uh, people acquiring flapper culture from the UK and the US and bringing that back to 1920s Shanghai. So I think she herself is, is a polyglot and uh, multicultural, intercultural, able person. Yeah, well, you prompted me here to uh, to uh, give your thoughts with the colleagues and listeners in Shanghai, uh, which mm -hmm. has had a big resurgence recently in the uh, COVID-19. Uh, and I hope they're on the tail end of that. 
Mm, uh, absolutely. But, uh, very, very sad stuff. I mean, just when uh, the rest of us feel this, you know, larger light at the end of the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but let's get back to Sarah. And now I want to go to a recent book chapter, Vanguard Taste and Fashion Spirit, Feminist Responses to 21st Century Zeitgeist in Young Adult, Vampire, Romeo and Julio, Juliet, <laughs> Romeo and Juliet text. Uh, that was in an uh, edition on young adult gothic fiction mm-hmm. uh, published in Wales, the University of Wales Press. Yeah, that was an, a pure coincidence. Um, that was uh, to do with the fact that they're pretty good at publishing both on um, young people's fiction and culture and also on um, gothic. They have like a good gothic series going. And the editors are two Australians, Michelle Smith, Christine Maruzzi. So it kind of taps into all these different, you know, the time I spent in Australia, except I never knew uh, uh, Michelle or Christine then. Um, They come out of Melbourne. They work out of Melbourne, Victoria. And um, I got to know them subsequently. And we have friends in common who work on Shakespeare. So, again, there's this collision of Gothic and Shakespeare and kind of young adult culture that has just been really productive. Um, I guess I I had begun to work on um, Romeo and Juliet adaptations that involve vampires and serendipitously had this opportunity um, to pop the book chapter out for them. But again, it's another lovely marriage of these three um, big research interests that I'm having at the moment. It's so interesting to me uh, recently because when you say YA uh, in Japan, and I think throughout a large part of the world, you're primarily, and you're talking about feminist responses, uh, young women are the readers, uh, largely in Japan, not not, nece- not young men. Young men go to games, and mm-hmm. it's very uh, gender segregated that way. And uh, yeah, there are young men who, uh, of course, read manga and so forth. But these YA novels that take on Shakespeare and the theme ostensibly of love, right? Right. That's what people think of romance and love and Shakespeare is love. And then there's Shakespeare in love, the movie. And and so my students are surprised every year when we start out with the street fight (laughs) over basically somebody popping the bird to another guy. He bites his thumb. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I have mm -hmm. to explain that's the same as, you know, up yours or whatever. And young boys uh, to our, you know, what does the prince say out of airy nothingness, the entire town explodes into a street fight and so this is disappointment at the beginning of where's the love story <laughs> this is a, you know uh, and of course the uh, young men in my class are all yeah oh yeah cool um but um and some of the young women too but the uh, uh the thing is that uh we uh your your audience for ya is largely uh feminine and i guess we we, we include in that uh trans or uh any any number of um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know reaches along the spectrum of gender or whatnot uh but pe- but young people who identify strongly mm-hmm. with the notion of true romance and then get very very uh what drawn in by the whole vampire kind of twilight yeah. thing. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I've noticed some glimmers of recognition yeah. already when I'm talking to my students here at Kobe College about um, what I do. Um, and it's always great to be able to mention, uh, say, the Twilight Saga and see that glimmer of recognition and maybe just another way of having a hook into Shakespeare. So to talk about the way that Stephanie Mayer reprocesses um, or alludes to Romeo and Juliet or Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre just kind of gives them that additional hook or kind of point of connection um, with Shakespeare. So it's been nice to kind of have that to sort of trail some of the things that I'll be talking about in class. Um, and I think, yeah, one of my kind of arguments has been around um, the way that both vampires and Romeo and Juliet in these texts fruitfully collide in order to have discussions about um, sexuality, about consent, about violence within intimate relationships, those sorts of things. So, you know, there are a couple of ways of, of working through this tricky territory and some areas that can be very difficult for young people to have discussions around. Um, and, you know, all of these texts, all of these authors are kind of coming together um, in these reworkings to kind of help people have a way to talk about these or to think them through or to have some discussion about, hmm, how do we feel when, when Romeo does this? Or how do we feel um, about, uh, I don't know, things like age differences, those sorts of things? Yeah, well, also I think that you're onto something here. These are wildly popular uh, in Japan and throughout the world and not always Shakespeare, but it, to parallel this with the Shakespearean period, you, you know, you may have picked up a, a quarto version of the first quarto of Hamlet uh, to kind of see what that guy was saying, which we, we now consider to be uh, not a complete uh, version of Hamlet, uh, but the first quarto right now, uh, a copy of it would be very valuable, of course. Mm -hmm. And so you wonder which ones of these books 400 years from now Right. Oh, uh, yeah. It, you know, it, it might be Twilight or that might be lost to history. It might be something we don't really notice. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you're it, it, I think people uh, are largely I mean, widely, popularly believe that there is popular and there is literature. And what I have seen, even in my own life, is that a lot of things that were considered and we think, we think of a lot of bands, musicians and so forth as just throwaway stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, uh, uh, you know, some years later, suddenly it's, you know, canonical and yeah. uh, literature goes that way. Songs. What happened with poetry? Well, it went into the recording studio and there are these people who stick and these people who don't. And mm -hmm. somewhere in your research, uh, you're going to find that that thing that does stick and, and, and marks an entire epoch, really a generation of people who encountered these themes during their formative years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. And, you know, Twilight is a really interesting case because it looks right now like that's going to be the one that sticks. But it's also the one that has a lot of um, uh, it produces a lot of strong and polarizing feelings, right, about the messages it's giving young women, the messages it's giving, particularly around things like um, sex before marriage and whether that should happen or not happen, whether it's progressive or regressive. 
Um, so there is a lot of debate, and I guess it means it could go either way. And one of the things I've enjoyed doing through that article is to flag up, although I haven't said this necessarily explicitly in the article, a couple of other authors who I think retell Romeo and Juliet and with the help of vampires in much more kind of funky and progressive ways. So, you know, they might have, for example, a young male character stepping in um, to um, diffuse an argument in a, in a home, in a domestic violence situation. And I kind of have real great respect for um, the author of that work for, for kind of being able to show representations of, oh, well, you know, this is how men can step up and be involved and not be bystanders. And it just feels really, um, maybe to me, more progressive, um, more kind of aspirational, what we should be aspiring to um, in society and culture than necessarily Edward and Jacob. Yeah, and I'm also thinking you, what you just said made me think of what we we're writing about uh, uh, a um, a series by uh, I'm forgetting her uh, given name uh, Yoshimura, but uh, having to do with uh, Twelfth Night as the mm -hmm. source that in the Japanese title, uh, well, it, about the bad tempered Duke. In that in that particular work. Uh, is are two the, both of the things that you're talking about. There is convention. There's the idea that the the young woman who approaches this bad-tempered man, mm -hmm. powerful, uh, melancholy, sad for various reasons, can somehow repair him. Okay, mm -hmm. very very conventional theme. But in the same time, the uh, both of them are. Uh, are androgynes. There is gender bending throughout the entire work uh, that seems to suggest that the way she does this is through acquiring the role of a of a of a traditional male to draw him in, and he becomes more effeminate traditionally. To and somehow they meet in the middle, and then of course in the end it goes straight back to convention, right? Uh, uh, so so as to make to, to leave you on safe ground socially. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that is interesting to me. Oh, yeah. And certainly, you know, thinking about uh, kind of gender and performing gender, I am so happy that some of my um, students already mentioned that they'd uh, seen Takarazuka adaptations of Shakespeare. So it could be of Romeo and Juliet or it could be um, the 400th anniversary kind of celebration of Shakespeare's uh, life that I think happened um, 2016 is it that long ago um and so you know these students already being able to say well I have engaged with Shakespeare but it's been filtered through Takarazuka through this Japanese medium um with this uh, all-female troupe um really not that far away from me here what 10 minutes on the train probably yeah. to Takarazuka yeah. Yeah. um so I know that um, Matsuyama-sensei is um, interested in those adaptations as well as things like Psychopaths and the Twelfth Night reversioning, which I don't know the name of either, but um, yeah. Well, I just wrote on it and I should have it fresh <laughs> in my mind, but there's the Japanese and English uh, and the English, uh, let's don't worry about that. It is what it is. And, uh, uh, and it's interesting what uh, authors, what in fact, the, the author, the uh, adapter, 
does with these stories, uh, just endlessly interesting. Mm -hmm. And I want to turn a little bit here to your work in your, your work, your background is both in education and where you, that that's, you, you were in that uh, field, in the field of uh, education at Cambridge. And you also uh, did your, uh, did uh, your work at the Shakespeare Institute in Stratford. So you have this two tiered mm -hmm. approach to the, you know, education, Shakespeare, and then you've moved on to kind of some other things, but you have done a book with uh, Kohei Uchimaru, uh, Uchimaru, and uh, Uchimaru uh, Sensei is mm -hmm. a uh, you know associate uh, of of mine, a very very bright scholar, uh, along with Adele Lee, and she is known for her recent work on Shakespeare in East Asia, mm -hmm. and Rosalind Fielding. Uh, but the title of the book is Shakespeare and East Asian Education, and that's out from Paul Grave. And uh, I think it has some wonderful resources in there and very, very interesting. Oh, thank you. I mean, you mentioned um, Alexa Juban earlier, and she is the uh, editor yeah. of the series that it sits within. So yeah, there it the is. That was dumb. Shakespeare Palgrave was... series. Well, I nearly, <laughs> I you know, it. I nearly pulled you in this direction when you mentioned Alexa a, a little while ago, but I thought, yeah. nah, I'll leave it and I can hook back, back to, to it her later, later on. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. So um, Uchimaru Sensei obviously is known for his work, um, particularly on the evolving policy of Shakespeare in Japanese education and the way that um, tuition about Shakespeare has evolved through, you know, over a century of textbooks now published in Japan um, for teaching Shakespeare in, for example, higher education. So that's what his chapter um, focuses on. Adele Lee, um, as you mentioned, she's worked a lot on East Asian Shakespeare in Hong Kong. She now um, publishes quite a lot on accentism in relation to performances, um, productions of Shakespeare. And her work was particularly focused on secondary schooling in Hong Kong and things like the use of active methods, which is another of my interests. Um, so these dramatic or practical pedagogies for approaching Shakespeare. And then uh, Rosie Fielding, Rosalind Fielding, um, also from the Shakespeare Institute, University of Birmingham. She, her chapter hooks back directly to something you mentioned just a couple of minutes ago, that Shakespeare the children series coming out of Japan. Um, I think in a way, a kind of offshoot of um, Nina Gower's theatre in that some of the practitioners, the directors involved, um, you know, had worked with or were trained by um, Nina Gower. So it was really exciting to me when you said this is maybe coming back to life, um, that series um, will be kind of revived because I had no idea, but for readers that are interested, um, yeah, Rosie does a, a kind of take on the history of that series, how it came about. She examines some of the key choices, so the use of a chorus in it, the use of um, a kind of figure, presenting Shakespeare, uh, those sorts of things. And also thinking about mm, the way that uh, children respond to it and that it's tailored to children and that you could maybe sit it 
um, alongside or do some comparison of it with things like the uh, plain Shakespeare, Deutsche Bank, Shakespeare's Globe productions in the UK, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, this this is just wonderful stuff. I wanted to add to this a supplemental that it is too, uh, I know that uh, I'm gonna say Professor Uchimaru. We know him in Japan as Uchimaru Sensei, but for our international audience, yes. Professor uh, Uchimaru has done work on uh, in trying to push forward uh, the idea of teaching literature in secondary, what in America is called secondary school, mm -hmm. uh, in middle school, high school, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, which it, it is not, literature is not taught in Japanese uh, secondary education. And uh, of course, Uchima, uh, Professor Uchimaru uh, argues that it should be, and he's there with uh, some of our friends, uh, uh, Hirohisa Igarashi, uh, Amy Hamana, I, I could, the, the list goes mm -hmm. on, of course, mm -hmm. Matsuya, uh, Professor Matsuyama, and uh, 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 Matsu sensei and, uh, mm -hmm, and uh, mm -hmm. some very, uh, and, and of course, I don't know if we together, uh, you know, with my Japanese colleagues could push something, it would take uh, so institutionalized mm -hmm. uh, and set, but uh, that, that is, uh, uh, the Japanese word is zanne, it's a shame because your students at Bangor or at York or in Stratford, they come in, probably some of them prejudiced against yeah. learning even more Shakespeare, you know, boom, 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 all the way through. But they do come in with, the, uh, with an understanding of what literary study is all about. And uh, my Japanese students uh, do not. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you kind of have to, have to start from scratch and the ones who get it, they really get it. And uh, then there are others who just get through some mm -hmm. other way. You know, that's so interesting to me because whilst I'm here and whilst I'm teaching, I am um, attempting what in educational research we call autoethnography. And it's also used by anthropologists, but, you know, a lot of reflexivity. So reflecting on um, how my classes went, why I planned things a particular way, why I chose a particular passage from Shakespeare to teach in class, you know, why I thought that would be good, how did it go, that sort of thing. And already I've started looking at um, the exit tickets that my students uh, put up on, um, you know, our virtual learning environment from our class last week. And I'd ask them to, to tell me a bit about their first encounters with Shakespeare, um, what they knew about him already, um, and what they want to learn, because I want to be able to tailor the course a little bit to their particular interest in Shakespeare. So already I am getting some of those um, uh, experiences with Shakespeare that you mentioned coming up. So if he's been done in high school, it's not really as literature. It's through perhaps the music department looking at um, the overture from Romeo and Juliet, or it's from uh, world history class where it's maybe about ye old England and Stratford on Avon and the history um, of the Elizabethan stage, for example. And I know that um, uh, Professor Uchimaru um, and my chapter also in the uh, Shakespeare in East Asian education book do look at the pressure on literature academics in Japan, Shakespeare academics, you know, obviously at the heart of that, um, in terms of 
communicative English and a shift away from uh, using literature as as something that you can explore language through, that you can explore how language works, how it creates emotions, um, how it can be used to communicate, um, how it captures linguistic evolution, those sorts of things. So, yeah, <laughs> um, I, I don't really know where to go with this. I, I lose my thread, well, I, but it certainly well, no, connects yeah. to the work of so many Shakespeareans here. And I think it connects to some of the challenges involved in teaching literature in Japan when, when young people all over the world are maybe coming away from canonical literature, maybe engaging with lots of other literatures, maybe producing and publishing their own literatures through, um, you know, blogs or through websites that share young people's fiction. Um, but yeah, it, it sure um, captures some of those challenges. Well, yeah, and what you're saying is not not only is there not a move to do literary study in, and let's say cultural study, cross-cultural study, those things that that build uh, critical thinking skills and to build, uh, they're very practical at the very bottom line. I mean, they they bring, they give people self-confidence because when you can think through things and analyze things, that builds self-confidence. And, and they're hardly, you know, people who are good in math feel that when they can get something right. But there are other areas of the uh, brain you want to cultivate. And the great mathematicians, of course, have both of these areas highly formed and developed. Uh, but not only is there no push really uh, of significance to do this, there is, has, has been recently a push to just get rid of the humanities mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. higher education. That uh, came up a few years back, I think uh, more like seven years ago. Now, uh, uh, the years pass so quickly sometimes, but uh, that, there was great pushback on that. <laughs> And uh, when you start going to Kyoto, I'm sorry, the University of Kyoto, and saying we're going to get rid of Japanese studies mm -hmm. of the uh, Edo period, of the Heian period, of the, and you go to the University of Tokyo, you're dealing with some very, very powerful forces there, and the Ministry of Education, that branch of it, is a very mm -hmm. large that proposed that. And in fact, a couple of national universities uh, knocked out their entire school of humanities. I don't know where they're. Uh, that stopped very quickly, and there was a an apology released in kind of Japanese fashion. That was uh, we made a there was a kind of proofreading error mm. in, in, in the uh, you know documentation we produced, and I'm sure somebody um, uh, there was you know some kind of thing going on, but we'll never know. It all happened behind the scenes, mm -hmm. but you can see what happens. Can you imagine in the UK? Right. The first line of defense would be the elite universities where there would be somebody in the houses of parliament. Go, Are you out of your mind? And the well, you'd hope so, Tom, but I don't necessarily have that confidence in our current government necessarily. I think there are certainly <laughs> parallels around um, politics in relation to education, humanities, culture. Um, and where they should be placed and who should be funding them. I'm, you know, I'm sorry to say that I think that this is the case, but there are possibly more similarities than people might realize between yeah, yeah. recent and or current Japanese and uh, British governments. But also, for example, you were talking about maybe some pulling back from the teaching of um, literatures and cultures from other parts of the world, from outside Japan. And certainly in the UK, in the context of Brexit, 
But even before Brexit, um, our education minister at the time, Michael Gove, deleted pretty much um, study of world literature. So, you know, I grew up doing things like, okay, I know I'm a geek, um, but I used to read Tolstoy because I thought those were great, like stories, huge romances. I love the characters in them. Um, you know, Anna Karenina just fits so well with other 19th century literature that I was reading at the time. And it gave me this curiosity about, I don't know, tea cultures um, in Russia or about going to the opera in Russia um, in the 19th century, those sorts of things. And suddenly, or not so suddenly, over a kind of protracted period of time now, it feels like the UK government has been closing school children's doors on literatures from other parts of the world, whether it's Russia, whether it's uh, reading literature in translation. So there are huge amounts of literature in translation from Japan that are really popular with um, readers in the UK. So Murakami would be an obvious example, um, but also more recent authors and um, young women authors. So, for example, uh, the novel that translates um, in British, in English, as uh, Breasts and Eggs has currently been all over the Bookstone, uh, Bookstones, Waterstones bookshelves, WH Smith bookshelves. But our government is not supporting, um, you know, the study of those translated texts. So, yeah, there are some sad parallels around nationalism and kind of getting inward looking um, and, and not getting excited you know, by experiencing these other cultures, which I think is doubly a shame at a time of pandemic and when we can't do necessarily international conferences, when we can't necessarily have research and mobility to a great extent and young people can't travel and do those exchanges or do those years as international students that they used to do. This literature that comes from other places is this huge wealth of knowledge and experience and connection with other cultures. And I feel that possibly both our governments are, are if not denying that, kind of um, deprioritizing it. Yeah, I think you're right. But then um, I would encourage anybody in power to issue a statement saying you are forbidden to read Tolstoy to young people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just backfires. And in the States, there are always are, they're a group of, uh, and I don't want to disparage, I have many friends who are devout Christians, but they're usually, they're, sometimes it's a Christian outcry uh, years ago against Harry Potter or mm -hmm, against mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, certain cartoon characters that seem a little bit too gender bending or whatnot. And inv invariably what happens is that the popularity of those things just shoots way up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the old reverse psychology thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You yeah. know who did that? It's a, a dear sort of Shakespearean and British actor. Uh, I think it was Helen Mirren who was in one of our leading newspapers in the UK as saying, I think Shakespeare should be banned from schools. And of course, you know, that's that's a great bit of clickbait and it's a great grabby headline. Oh, Helen Mirren, you know, started out with the RSC, famous for her acting there as well as on television and film, was a wonderful prosper in The Tempest. 
And you think, oh, hold on, she's saying Shakespeare should be banned. And then you read a little bit more into the article and it's exactly for that reason, Tom, saying, hey, if you don't let the under 16s have this, they'll want it. They'll want it, yep. Uh, it, it, it is uh, part of a great tradition of uh, British uh, uh, sustained irony. I think it's, we had to learn about that. You know, yep. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Swift's modest proposal, right? Yeah. So yes, it makes perfect sense to eat babies. It's either that <laughs> or that reverse kind of psychology, yeah. you know, or, yeah. you know, the interrelation yeah. of the two. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, that's, this is just, uh, I think we're going to survive by the way, I'm very optimistic about that because the public demand, you know, they're very vociferous, vociferous, mm-hmm. uh, clickbait people who are serious about getting their views, uh, and going after the egghead intellectuals, the snowflakes to, you know, to, to, um, uh, what's the word to own, to own the left, you know, make them mm-hmm. mad. And they're mm-hmm. driven to do that daily. But basically, when uh, I, I can talk to friends of mine who have graduate, uh, who have graduated in engineering sciences, who are doctors, and you know, if I went and said, "Listen, for my undergraduate school, do you think they should just cut out Shakespeare altogether?" Every one of them, and some of these guys are mm-hmm. very conservative, would say, "Absolutely not." I mean, you know, that's the varnish in their minds. If nothing else, that's the varnish. You strip the varnish off the wood you're taking value, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like dropping your, um, your iPhone on the ground, right? Yeah. It's, it's not as valuable uh, with the, uh, with the, gra- you know, the uh, glass cracked. And that's mm-hmm. essentially what you're doing when you take these uh, fields away from, uh, from colleges and universities that wish to, to be universities, universal yeah. places of universal knowledge. Uh, but uh, I want to get to uh, uh, to your work here on uh, well, there's the, there's the World Educational Summit online, and mm-hmm. let's not overlook that. That sounds big. It does sound big, doesn't it? It is a huge undertaking, and I have to say, like I'm I'm contributing to one country's stage. So the way that it works is it is uh, an online conference, meeting place, um, place to share presentations aimed at educators around the world, but particularly secondary school Mm -hmm. teachers um, across all subjects. So it really is, you know, you mentioned universal and comprehensive education a minute ago. It really is uh, going for that. And um, the stage that I'm con- stage, I say because it's a virtual stage, it's a virtual platform, um, is the Welsh stage. So here we have about six or seven uh, universities from across Wales, of which, you know, Bangor is one, um, really trying to speak to Welsh educators about their research, right? The idea is that you put it out there in an accessible approachable and applicable way. So how does your research um, relate to what teachers are doing in the classroom? For so for me, it's been a mission of relating the first nationwide UK survey of teaching Shakespeare that I undertook with uh, Dr. Belda Victoria Elliott um, at the University of Oxford from their education department and thinking, what would teachers wanna know from what we found? What do they want to know from this survey, particularly in relation to pedagogies and practices around Shakespeare? Um, So we talked previously and published previously about 
um, the findings from this survey of what Shakespeare people do in the classroom and why. And one of the things I'd say that was really heartening about that, although it was Macbeth, 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 over and over again, is that there's also a huge range. So whilst Macbeth might have got the most kind of votes from teachers to use in the classroom, you know, we also got mentions of uh, teachers doing all's well that ends well, or Titus Andronicus, and that was not what I was expecting to see. So, you know, where you can give teachers the freedom, they will choose really interesting texts, and they will choose them and be motivated to teach them, because there's got to be a reason that you think Titus Andronicus is going to work great with those year 10s, otherwise you don't do it. You've got to have a passion or an interest. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. In this talk, we're particularly thinking about pedagogies and practices. And within that, thinking about um, during the 80s, 90s, noughties even, there was a lot of kickback against people like Rex Gibson, um, against my good friend James Streder, the North Face of Shakespeare. Those sorts of active methods, drama methods, practical methods, um, people saying, oh, this is going to take over the classroom, these active methods. There won't be any space left for reading the text. Students will become ignorant because they won't actually look at Shakespeare on the page. And it was this reactionary hoo-ha against these methods. Well, you know what we found? many teachers aren't even aware of active methods. So that kind of fear that like these methods would come in and take over the classroom, that needs to be thrown out the window. It's just not true. Now, it could be that teachers don't know the, the kind of brand or the name active methods, but actually they are doing role play. They are doing hot seating. They're doing balloon debates. Um, that could be part of what's going on here. But actually, it's also around things like confidence, teach confidence to use some of those methods. It takes a fair amount of confidence, right, to, to stand up and get people into groups and, you know, shove your chairs to the back of the classroom. You know, it, it can be quite a vulnerable experience as a teacher to do some of those things, to take those risks. So a lot of teachers talked about that. Um, also teachers talking about funding. So they would have preferred to be able to bring someone, for example, from the Globe or the Royal Shakespeare Company yeah. into the classroom to head up that work. Yeah. Funding has been really tough to do that. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, so I think one of the positive developments for using some of these methods will be um, that places like the Royal Shakespeare Company and Shakespeare's Globe during the pandemic have been trying to find ways to connect with classrooms virtually and mm -hmm. possibly at a slightly lower cost uh, than yeah. is involved when you have to get on a train up to Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I spoke a couple of months ago with Peggy O'Brien, who's director mm -hmm. of education at the Folger, and she talks about the Folger method, which essentially is uh, very similar to what you're talking about, the uh, active learning in, in classroom situations. And she began her career as a Washington, D.C. Pub public, and that's a different, uh, normal, normal school yeah. uh, teacher in Washington, D.C., and had to revise everything in order to engage her students, which she eventually did. 
And we talked about that in, in that particular episode. She mentioned also, Jackie, uh, is it Hanlon? Uh, oh, oh, Hanlon, yeah. Yes, at the and, and I want to uh, maybe ask her on for to talk about just these things, because let's just face it. If I try to do acting in front of my class, and I have tried, you know, just to demonstrate, and we do for the seminar classes, the smaller classes we do, uh, uh, you know, the students can can work together and get a performance together of a short passage, what, and it all works very well. But uh, uh, if I could bring in an RSC actor for mm-hmm. one class, it would be a game changer because you you know the the power that you, you know, you see they're talking one moment and a professional actor, you see that trans, that magical transformational moment where they go into character. Mm-hmm. And it, it is something when you can reach out and touch them, you know, they're that close. And uh, money for that would be money well, well spent. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, whilst um, it is tricky to get that funding and to bring people internationally, um, I think, you know, something about technologies in the pandemic, the impetus during the pandemic to to kind of say like, OK, let's not be snobby about um, Zooming people um, and bringing them into the classroom that way. Let's try not to see it as second best. Sure, it's different. You're not going to be able to necessarily reach out and touch them. Although there are some great blue screen technologies that people have been using. For example, I saw a, a presentation at the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry about someone who teaches their class in England um, in collaboration with someone else who teaches a class in Poland. And they come together via this blue screen uh, technology to put on performances together from two separate sides of Europe. And, you know, they stand in a semicircle in Coventry next to the screen and in Poland, they do the same. And it actually produces this whole circle and they can do things like virtually pass objects or gestures, virtually throw gestures across the room to each other so one of the things that I would love to have more opportunity to research is um, the impact of the pandemic and technology on teaching Shakespeare the extent to which people have embraced in their classroom digital Shakespeare's whether that's performances from the National Theatre that have been made free whether it's things like using the Asian Shakespeare Intercultural Archive more to teach their classes, because you don't necessarily have Nina Gowers Macbeth coming to London anytime soon, but you can use these archival, high quality, uh, multilingually translated performances. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And traditionally, in the the history of all of this, and I don't want to get to, this is this is a uh, take a nap stuff, but uh, copyright protection on a lot of these uh, a lot of these productions and so forth is for some for money making operations, big money. I understand, mm-hmm. but in some cases, it absolutely just murders what otherwise could be a a great moment in theater history. And uh, fortunately, we have uh, a, a number of tapes in our library that we can use and, the, uh, and that sort of thing. It, it's just of immeasurable benefit in second language situations. And I've said before, everybody's in a second language situation when they come across Shakespeare. 
but the, for me to cover, you know, some of this language, and I, I saw you do it here on campus with a sonnet, right, mm -hmm. line by line, mm -hmm. but we do that in class, but then you want to see the flow of the drama, and, uh, and you can play a clip from uh, Branagh's Hamlet with some Japanese subtitles, and that brings people in. These are portals, mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, so we have, uh, there was an article out uh, about five or six years ago about the, 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 the end of digital humanities. Mm -hmm. And uh, guess what? It's back in. It's back oh, in. Oh, absolutely. We, we've, all, we've all had to go digital and it's just going to get better. Like you're saying, it's, people will, you know, you look at the films, the history of film, the first films didn't look that, <laughs> they weren't that great, but people got good very quickly uh, in developing techniques. I know at Carnegie, uh, Carnegie Mellon that Steve Wittick and uh, in cooperation with David um, McGinnis at the University of Melbourne have done a recent uh, shrew uh, mm -hmm. in virtual, virtual reality, which is an interesting concept. Uh, and so these things are here and more and more mm -hmm. of these things are coming. And I think that you're right there on the, uh, on the cutting edge, Sarah, yeah. as always. Absolutely. And you can see some, um, some Zoom Shakespeare's from Japan. So for example, um, Yu Umamiya, who's a, a graduate of um, Waseda and also the Shakespeare Institute, he has the Waseda Institute players who've been doing Zoom productions when they weren't allowed to get together and do rehearsals. And they've been so creative in the way that they retell these stories through an online environment and maybe some of the ruses um, that need to be come up with for why particular characters are, you know, dating online or whatever else it might be. Um, but I definitely recommend those are up on YouTube if anyone just wants to, to find those Wasada Institute Players Shakespeare productions. And I think there might be some other early modern drama bits and pieces that they're doing. Well, good for him and good for any all of all of these efforts. There is a strong uh, uh, internationally, but there's a strong feeling in Japan that sometimes you have to protect a production and not and not give open access to it and uh, not uh, have uh, if you're doing a conference, for instance, not recording the lecture in the conference because it's just for members and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And there's a bit of that uh, also, well, you know, all across the world, but it's fairly strong in Japan. And I really have uh, tried to argue against that because, again, you just kill something. It's a it's a moment in time and then you don't see it again. And mm -hmm. do I wish they had set up just a few just a few little angle cameras for Peter Brooks, Anthony and Cleopatra with yeah. Glenda with Glenda Jackson. You know, it's in my mind, but uh, this sounds morbid going back to uh, Gothic. But you know, it it dies with me, right? That memory mm -hmm. dies with me. It doesn't live for others to see. Uh, there's a great production of Edward II. You talk about a pertinent play now, Marlowe's Edward II mm -hmm. with Ian McClellan, and it's just you know his Macbeth is very famous, but this performance it just and, and, and it's not exquisitely, you know, Hollywood type film. It's mm -hmm. just they do the stage play, but they do camera angles very well uh, in the 1970s. And mm. it just knocks you out. It yeah. is amazing. You know, so let's let's hope for more of this. And, and, and also because they filmed it, I, I have it. I can show it. <laughs> And well, and you're right. You were saying, you know, like uh, some people uh, maybe in the ministry or some people around Japan are saying, well, why should we be doing this? Why should we look at these Shakespeare plays? 
But, you know, you just mentioned that you can use these to talk about things like cinematic production over the era, or you can use them to talk about technology or even, you know, something more to do with critical literacy about, well, how was that put together? Why is it authoritative? Um, Who gets to control what we see in that production? These are all great critical questions that you can ask students who may well be the people producing NHK of the future or Netflix or anything else. So to get them to consider those questions through the lens of Shakespeare, um, if you're, you know, going to make a, a, you know, a call for it being applicable in the 21st century, that's one way to do it. Or the depiction of a king of England who is wildly in love with a man, mm-hmm. so much so that he brings this man of um, questionable background to court and keeps promoting him. And these what seem to be, uh, well, with homophobic nobles. But then as the play progresses, you go, you, you hear time uh, a couple of times, listen, you can have your minions. You can do this, but you can't make him one of us, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the downfall, right? But you have that element uh, in a 16th century play, right? Here, something, you know, that would be very current that could be done uh, and moved into uh, modern times very easily. Mm-hmm. Now, upcoming, Sarah, we have to go upcoming here. You have uh, image and reproduction remediation, children's and young adults Shakespeare, uh, mm-hmm. in, in an uh, in encyclopedia in, uh, entry. And uh, word is out already that you're doing an issue for... Kaye Elizabethan. So, Kaye so Elizabethan, okay. Yeah, no, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're doing um, a guest issue on Hot Shakespeare, Cool Japan, which, you know, um, in a way, it's a kind of cheesy title, right? And it's entirely my responsibility. It, you know, I don't want um, the weight of that to fall on Kaye or to fall on any of the people contributing to the issue. Um, but, you know, partly I thought I want something lively um, after, you know, a kind of dull or bland couple of years for many of us. But I also quite like it because um, it recognizes those intercultural connections that we've got between Japan and the UK because uh, both governments, both nations have at particular times used this branding of cool Britannia, cool Japan around their tourism and cultural industries. So it's a little bit of a hark, um, harking back to that in a tongue. Well, there's nothing right. cheesy about the title at all. There, uh, some years ago when, uh, who was a prime minister, Koizumi, uh, the heat in Tokyo is, is so intense in August in particular. Uh, he basically let out the word to the entire business com- community that you can take off your tie in the summer and open your shirt collar and you don't necessarily need a jacket. And he called it cool biz. It was oh, cool biz. I like so in, that. in English, cool biz. And so the uh, with, with the pun intended. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is going to uh, have resonance in Japan. The word cool is in Japanese, pronounced a little bit differently. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think you've, uh, you've landed a good, uh, a good title. And hot, there's some, you know, uh, you know, hot can mean a lot of things. And, uh, so, <laughs> it's uh, so polyvalent, isn't it? You know, we've been yes. talking about sexuality a lot. So hot Shakespeare in terms of romance and sexual relationships. <laughs> It could be hot Shakespeare in terms of 
hey, if you're doing, you know, original performance Shakespeare with original costumes here in July and August, you're going to get pretty hot under those collars, under those ruffs. Um, but also in terms of Shakespeare that has an electric charge, right? Shakespeare that is, I don't know, tasty or flying off the plate or um, having a hot moment, I guess. Um, so hopefully it kind of, people can use it to connote whatever Shakespeare they think of as, as hot Shakespeare. Maybe it could also be Shakespeare that's really contested, right? You know, people arguing over whether this play is Shakespeare or not, or arguing over the best way to uh, stage Shakespeare in the 21st century. So it allows for some of that contestation um, as well. And I guess one of the things that I should do here, seeing as you've um, pretty much cued me up to do this, is to say that if anybody listening um, or viewing has got a short article, let's say around 4,000 words, and it's ready to go, and they've been, you know, working away on it through this pandemic, maybe hold up um, in their lockdown. And they think, I really want a venue to get this 4,000 word thing about Japanese Shakespeare or Shakespeare in Japan or Shakespeare from Japan or Shakespeare by an academic in Japan. You know, I'm taking this title and this umbrella um, very expansively. If they have that ready to go by July and they want to contact me, um, esteroliv at banger.ac.uk, and I know you're going to pop those communication channels up there, Tom. One of the things we did, there's a beautiful Shakespeare garden here. I, I don't know how famous the campus is um, at Kobe College, this beautiful hillside campus which is really handy in that warm weather as well, because you get a nice gully breeze coming down off the hills. But there is a Shakespeare garden that over many decades was super carefully put together by now emeritus professor Kinjo. Um, and he brought, you know, seedlings and plants that are in Shakespeare's plays, in Shakespeare's poems, labeled them up, put quotations that pertain to them next to them. And it's this beautiful, spot for lunch or a coffee or just for kind of taking a book to read it'd be really fitting if that happened to be a book of sonnets or a, a book of Shakespeare's plays right smack bang in the middle of campus right next to the literature buildings um, here on college and what we're going to do is we're going to go out there there's going to be a Shakespeare surprise uh, sonnet draw so I'm going to throw all of the numbers of the sonnets in a hat and the students are going to pluck them out and we'll read them in the order that they come for an hour. We'll have some uh, music from Shakespeare's period, from his contemporaries on in the background. And if my cooking works, we're going to have some posset. We're going to have some lemon and lavender posset to um, delight our palates with. And, you know, to connect with things like the fact that there is lavender and edible flowers there. I'm not going to take the ones from the Shakespeare garden because that would be awful mean and they're just coming into bud. Um, but you know, it will allow students to engage with that Shakespeare garden and with Shakespeare's works in a multi-sensory multi way. So there's going to be audible delights, there's going to be tangible and gustatory delights, um, and also the pleasure of getting to speak and hear Shakespeare's language. Yep. 
and put all of that that uh, uh, much of which was in the future tense in the past tense. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, I'll go back through. This all happened. It was well received. The posset was deemed to be delicious and it set perfectly in the fridge beforehand. There were no crises. And, and I turned up in some gear as an Elizabethan peasant woman. So any of you that have been to Mary Arden's farm or any of those kind of living history museums, you just imagine this, uh, this woman with her skirts and her aprons and her big straw bonnet on. And that was me. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Well, to move, uh, just I want to make one little point, uh, and it's the kind of drum that I have that I like to tap on for all these enormous hundreds of thousands of people who are <laughs> who are uh, watching. Uh, I'm joking, of course. The, um, uh, the, the thing about Shakespeare and Japan, and I have uh, a co-author, co I spoke about this earlier in the article, but there was a little bit of con contesting, and I wanted to, to talk about this just a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's a little bit of a hot top topic in that uh, there, there is uh, from, uh, you know, post-colonial uh, reckonings, uh, and Adele Lee, by the way, handles this extraordinarily well, as, uh, as does Alexa Joben, uh, the, to, to make sure to point out the fact that Japan cannot be treated as a post-colonial uh, cultural uh, power. Uh, you don't um, you, you, it, to Japan is, is, that does not have anything close to the history of, say, India or many uh, African countries or any, any of that. And in fact, Japan at, at points colonized other places. Yeah. Uh, and some would say, well, the Americans colonized. Well, OK, but uh, the you know, there's um, uh, you know, there's an American military presence here, but you don't see it. Not in mm -hmm. Tokyo. And, uh, and I'm sure they get instructed on not wearing their uniforms and walking around town or whatnot. And the, the point is that the government, uh, I think a large portion of the government, some do and some don't, and Okinawa is a hot issue. Mm -hmm. But basically the uh, status quo is, and it's probably good to have a little bit of help here because we, got, we have some big countries near us uh, and we don't know where that might go. All right, so... Uh, so in writing about this, uh, I, I have, and I and I believe that some that my Japanese colleagues would take some offense in suggesting that there is a, a kind of post-colonial environment here, uh, given the enormous economic strides Japan made after World War II, and uh, given their prominence on the world economic and cultural stage. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, 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 so I I. I I had to make sure that that was in a paper I recently mm, wrote mm. that that is a big thing. And people are, you can go right back to the Meiji period from the very beginning, there was no inhibition in making infusing Japanese culture with Shakespeare. Right. Mm -hmm. Where there's some I don't know, it may have happened in a university where someone said, well, we can't wear kimonos. You know, we have to wear these 16th century dresses or we mm -hmm. can't uh, we have to put, at least put on a top hat and look Victorian. Maybe that's more Shakespearean than uh, our samurai. No, I, I can't. Not anything that's lasted and certainly not in Kurosawa or uh, in Ninagawa. That has it's, you know, it's Japanese Western fusion all the way through mm -hmm. and brilliant. 
And so uh, I, I didn't want to make that point. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I think that's a super point to make. And it's certainly one that we deal with in the Shakespeare and East Asian education book, because, you know, we've got chapters dedicated to uh, Hong Kong and Vietnam, which have admittedly very different colonial histories. So you've got British colonialism, you've got French colonialism, you've got, as you mentioned, in relation to Japan, but it's also applicable to Korea. You've got American troops occupying. Um, and then in this book, alongside that, we have Japan, which has this distinct history and a history of actually taking Shakespeare through various parts of Asia as a colonial force and in Japanese. Um, so maybe Japanese translations of uh, the Lamb's Tales, those sorts of things. So it is a point worth making, I think, about um, Japan having a rather unique relationship with Shakespeare and one that harks back to that period of connecting to um, things that are seen as good about British culture. So whether that is, for example, Toyota, looking to the uh, industrial um, goods from the UK and thinking about how those might be replicated in Japan, or whether it's thinking about, I don't know, dress and fashion that you mentioned and, and where they might fit into Japanese um, society and aesthetics, or whether it's kind of bringing over particular aspects of literature. And again, that's something that Professor Uchimari does so brilliantly in um, that chapter of Shakespeare in East Asia is to look at, well, you know, how was he received and um, who was happy about teaching Shakespeare uh, in higher education in Japan in the 18, what, 60s, 90s. Um, and he does, you know, he, he tells a nuanced story around the embrace, but also a couple of words against that or thinking about, um, for example, Soseke's not having a great experience with Shakespeare, but being kind of inescapably caught in a relationship with him that he, you know, reflects on and, and uses in his creativity, even if that's with a, mm, I'm not really sure about this Shakespeare stuff kind yeah. of note of reservation. So I think you're right to, to think about the very um, nuanced and complicated relationship that Japan has with Shakespeare and ways that that's very different to Shakespeare in India and Hong Kong where it, you know, is required so that you can get a position within the civil service. That's a very different in, hegemonically in India, situation. Yes, yes, in India, that was very strong. And I just spoke with Edward Wilson Lee, who wrote about Shakespeare in East Africa. And mm -hmm. he talks about how there were two, there was a two tiered sort of Shakespearean reception in India that went into Africa, of course, because of the Indian, uh, there were a number of Indian uh, people who migrated into East mm -hmm. Africa. And there was the sort of a popular tradition that developed. And then there were the others who had to pass their civil service, service exam. So there was the iconic sort of Victorian version version mm -hmm. uh, but uh the the winner with the public was the you know the popular version of course it always wins uh but uh anyhow i i want to uh make sure our audience i'll make sure that uh in in my quick little introduction before we begin that uh you are available <laughs> you are you are available for for talks for uh work we don't know this year exactly how travel within japan is going to work 
some, I think that it will be varied. I think that there will be uh, uh, colleges, universities that would love to have you come and visit on campus. And there may be others that have a policy of only, you know, students and professors in the ca campus. Uh, but you are here and available either in person or on Zoom. And I know that there are a number of people who would love to see you in person. But if not, as we're saying, we have uh, this this option we're using now also. Oh, thank you, Tom. Well, yeah, you're right. Like, uh, and the good thing about this option now that I'm <laughs> on this side of the world is that I am on the same time as you. So it's a little easier if people want to Zoom with me in Japan. We're not having to deal with that eight-hour time difference or something. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I am a traveling Shakespeare saleswoman. I have got in my briefcase <laughs> two or three different papers that I can rock out at the drop of a hat um, that I can tailor to your, your students and staff. Um, and probably a note that I should throw in there is that um, this semester is a very gentle introduction to teaching in Japan for me. So I'm a little quieter this semester. Next semester, it's not that it's impossible, but it certainly hots up for me on the teaching front in semester two. Um, but I would absolutely love to, to make uh, new connections and to revisit those old connections um, around Japan. And to be honest, on a slightly non-academic note, um, I'm heading back to Tokyo for a big steampunk event, super steampunker, um, that is happening um, in Chiba um, at the end of the month, just at the start of Golden Week. So that is certainly going to get me practicing my, um, you know, aesthetic presentational skills. I'm going to be modifying my uh, top hat, chucking a few gears on it to make sure that it fits in with that um, steampunk vibe. But, you know, again, that's another way of thinking about the influence of industrial revolution on popular Japanese culture, right? The way it gets integrated into steampunk anime and manga mm -hmm. and, and so on. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I am, I'm open to travel and exploring new ways of thinking about British and Japanese connections. Well, thank you so much. We so much appreciate your, uh, you giving over your time today uh, to, to talk with, with us because there will be a lot of us uh, listening to you. And uh, so uh, here in Japan, and uh, we, we just absolutely cannot wait to see you in person. Uh, Sarah, thank you. Thank you again so much. Oh, thank you so much, Tom, also. It's been an absolute pleasure um, to come on here and, and have this talk with you, partly because it's just lovely to talk with you anytime, any place, partly because I would recommend this experience to uh, anyone that you invite out there because it feels like an opportunity just to recap you know, the positive things that have happened recently around your your work. I know I mentioned this to you in an email, but it feels like the very best and most positive version of a performance development review, as we call them in the UK, that we have to do annually to make sure that we're still allowed our contract and those sorts of things. But doing this feels like the very best version of that. Well, once again, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.